A warm welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. The Agile Gorilla is a collective of experienced M&A professionals located in Europe, the US, Asia, and the UK. We know each other professionally and personally, having worked on many deals around the globe together. For more information on the voices you'll hear, please go to our website. Every couple of weeks, we'll be discussing a topic or a deal that's hitting the headlines of M&A currently. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And perhaps most importantly, what should leadership be doing? And what might we do differently? As anyone who knows us or has dealt with us would say, we're never short of an opinion. Excellent. So uh, welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. This week, we're talking about a fantastic subject. It's got a little bit to do with M&A, but it's got to do with transformation and change. And we have our own in-house expert on the subject. We're going to talk about the glorious subject of the Mittelstand in Germany. Uh, and on the podcast, we've got David Boyd, we've got Paul Siegenthal, we've got Abe Pandi, and myself, Ben Dahlberg. Let's start, Paul, as the, and the man who knows most about the subjects, the subject, give us a, a description of what the Mittelstand actually is. Let's start with that. Yes, so the, the, the Mittelstand uh, originates from this, you know, it's diff- what, what is different about Germany compared to other countries. And, and history has shaped Germany in quite a different way uh, compared to most of uh, most European countries, certainly in the Western world. And I think there's three three things which are fundamentally different, which, which uh, one needs to understand, because the background to this conversation was basically um, the the proposal of a of carrier to take over a company which is well known in Germany, uh, which is Wiesmann, um, and that has splashed you know big headlines all over the place. Usually, when these sort of companies are acquired by by foreign groups, uh, there is huge anxiety in Germany, um, and and I think you know because because the Mittelstand is something very specific in terms of the, the the characteristics of those companies, they fear that those specific characteristics will be lost because they would be misunderstood by by other countries. And and uh, and I've seen it actually quite often, well, several times happen. So uh, the, the, the anxiety is justified. They may be looking at three things which have made um, the German economy develop in a different way compared to other Western countries. Uh, first of all, the fact that Germany is very decentralized. I can talk about, you know, basic reasons for that. Um, the fact that local mid-sized companies are very much embedded in the fabric of, of the local population. There's a very close uh, connection between people and, and the employer, closer than you would see in, in most Western countries. And then there are some specifics uh, of German ways of working, and I'm not being facetious here, uh, some which are embedded in, in labor law uh, and in the way businesses are organized. Uh, and so those three things can be threatened if, if uh, because of the close connection between companies and population. So if I come to the first one in terms of decentralization, um, if you compare to France or, or, uh, or the UK, um, which were you know royal countries, you have a capital, there's a there's a court and so on. Things tend to be very centralized. Whereas Germany is a very recent state. Uh, dates back to 1871. And before that, there were 39 local states competing with each other. And they spent a whole century before that uh, trying to find out how they could build a country where there was going to be what they call um, the, the Große Lösung, which was including also Austria and all that part of the empire, or just restricted to 
Germany and and you know very neighboring countries, but not not extending east. And and that is the solution they finally decided on. Although, as we know, in World War Two, you know the, the whole thing had been reopened. But but that's history. And so as a result of that, um, you know, industry. Uh, and businesses developed separately in each of these countries, which are quite widespread across the whole of the geography of, of, of Germany. Um, there isn't that sort of magnet, uh, local capital that draws all industry capital and 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 capabilities, like a sort of modern version of, of the medieval structure where you have a castle and, and all the farmers around work for, for the lord of the castle. Uh, and you do find as a result of this that's, that you've got um, mid-sized towns where a large majority of the population work for one company. And what happens to that company uh, can be devastating or very good for the local community. And that's why I think there is this, this um, fear about what happens to a business. It's, it is very um, one business, one small town. Um, and what adds to this is that the, uh, the companies, as I said, they're part of the fabric of the population. Germany has always had a very strong um, vocational education system with apprenticeships and so on, which are which are regulated, which are which are official and so on, um, and which give you qualifications which would be just as good as coming out of you know technical college and so on. Uh, and that means that in small areas or whatever, there's one large company will have a very good training program. People from that community. Uh, after compulsory schooling, very often at the age of 16, will join those companies and they will be trained in those companies. Um, and they are not belonging to those companies. I've worked with a few businesses in Germany where people had been, you know, from the age of 16 in the business up to retirement. Um, and so there's a bond between the people and so on. It's, a, it's quite a different setup than, than what we can see um, in, in other countries. Um, there's also big involvement of these mid-sized companies in, in uh, social activities, sports clubs and so on, sponsoring gym memberships and so on. You see that in large organizations, you know, big PLCs and so on do that, but not companies spread out in the countryside, typically in, in other countries. There, it's very much bound together. Um, and you end up there with, you know, one company employing everybody. You see the number of bicycles outside some of these big factories, you know, showing that people live nearby. Some of them even come on foot. Um, one company I worked with in the late 90s, uh, which was acquired by a UK group, um, and got quite traumatized about the whole thing. But when the company was bought, um, they had a tennis club with tennis courts. They had a, a sauna for the staff. Uh, they had all sorts of activities. And I said, well, this is a club med. It's not really a company. Um, and of course, all these things being viewed as totally non-essential and costly uh, by the UK acquirers were discarded. Um, and the company lost its soul. Uh, it, was, it was quite um, quite painful. And the third element, I think, in terms of specifics of Germany, which are quite often misunderstood by, by foreign acquirers when, when such a transaction happens, um, is, is um, first of all, participative uh, management. So whereas in, you know, we always hear about French uh, trade unions and so on, everybody going out with banners and stuff and, and burning tires and so on, but, uh, but they don't actually, you know, the, 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 the works council of the company does not decide anything. They, they can oversee in France, uh, they can give their opinion, they give what's called a préavis, and if the préavis is negative, well, management can still go ahead with whatever they propose. It might be tough, but they decide and bear the consequences. In Germany, the Betriebsrat, the, the, um, the Works Council, 
has a duty of of, of co-management with with the management itself, uh, and they're responsible for the outcome. And that means that uh, a lot of things by law have to be discussed and agreed before uh, with the Works Council before they can be implemented. Um, it means that when you're doing business transformation, the process can be very slow. And indeed, in the in the in post merger or post integration acquisitions, which I have led. Uh, involving German companies, Germany is usually the last one to complete its integration because you have this uh, lead time of explaining, communicating, negotiating, getting the approval. Paul, can I just interrupt just once for a second? I think that's a really interesting insight into, into these firms. Just a couple of things I was going to add to it, if possible. The, the first one, and I, I've only just picked up on this quite recently, but I, I, I was totally fascinated by it. It, it relates to the whole social infrastructure that sits behind Mittelstand companies. And, and the, the, the one thing that struck me, which was amazing, is that if you compare um, the banking sector in the UK, for example, to the, to the banking sector in Germany, you've got about a similar number of large banks. The difference is in, is in what they actually do. So in the UK, those four or five large banks are responsible for about 50% of, or 90% of all deposits are taken into those, those four or five banks. In, in Germany, those four or five large banks are only responsible for 12% of deposits. And there are over a thousand not-for-profit uh, banking financial services organizations that exist in these little communities that provide a service to both employee and I presume also to companies in terms of banking service. So, it, so it's not just the companies that exist in this space. It's also the, the service providers that sit behind it too. Uh, I suspect that's probably also true from a local government perspective in terms of infrastructure and planning permissions. I know we'll, we'll probably get onto that challenge going forward in terms of how planning looks in Germany and how that might be a constraint to it. But I just thought I'd, I'd Put that in the in the in the in the concept as well. The other thing I think I was going to just quickly check with you is because lots of people think Mittelstand means small and medium-sized enterprises. That is completely not the case. Um, so middle means middle, but it doesn't mean middle uh, in the context of 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 the size of the businesses that we're talking. We're talking about really substantial market-leading organisations that provide that have very very deep technical knowledge and and and. And patents and and uh, and market presence globally, uh, they just happen to be not based in the major centres, and they have this very interesting infrastructure. It, anything to reflect on in that, Paul? Just, just a couple of things to throw at you. I, I think uh, you know the banks or these these sort of financing institutions, which are sometimes non for profit, they also reflect the decentralisation of, of the German uh, you know puzzle, if you wish. People think more local. Uh, I would say that a Bavarian considers himself Bavarian before considering himself German. Um, but, you know, I come from a federal state, Switzerland, and here's the same. Um, you know, if you're from Geneva, you're from Geneva. If you work from where I am, it, it's it's four, and, and and you've got different schooling systems and everything is, 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 is different. So I think that is also, the, these financing institutions work very closely also with local governments and so on. Uh, they are sometimes partly uh, state-owned. Perfect. So I was going to go just quickly go around the room first, and then I was going to come back to you, Paul, on the question of ownership. Yeah, David, go. So for me, um, I, I love what you say, Paul, and that it, it goes back to the thing for me where people don't value what isn't on the PL in, in a lot of Anglo-Saxon or, or kind of what I call MBA thinking. If you can't see it on the PL, it, it's not valuable. Um, and yet there are examples, you know, 
tech companies, big tech are good at this. You know, if you look at Google and the support and services they provide and the environment they create for their staff, they're going in that direction. You know, they've got tennis courts, they've got canteens and law firms, the real good magic circle law firms. You know, I, I lived in a law firm office for about six months and I had breakfast, lunch and dinner there. It's, it, the, the food was amazing. I didn't actually want to be there, but I had to be for the project. Um, so I think there are examples of sectors in Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Saxon kind of cultures where we do that. It's just, um, I think they're not as prevalent. And um, yeah, the danger is if, if a company that has has the alternative way of viewing things acquires that alternative business, it's not just in this situation with Middlestand, um, other situations, you, you can have real issues there. But it's more of a, of a, of a new trend in the Western world. I think in Germany it's yeah. been for a long time. The, the company I was talking about, you know, in, in the mid nineties and late nineties, uh, that was acquired by by a British group. Um, they used to give people some leave to go to a spa, paid leave because it was all about their mental health. Now, you know, mental health is something which is now being spattered all over the place. But in the last what five ten years, in other countries, and I, and I think that in Germany, um, as opposed to the rest of the Western of Western Europe, that sort of espouse the American way of life, you know, they're saved by the Americans um, and the Brits during World War II, um, but everything American was, was sort of aspirational in the West. Germany had to pick themselves out, you know, out of their ruins and, and uh, after World War II, and, and they've developed in a different sense, I think, um, also in terms of consumer preferences um, to this day, uh maybe you know due to the maybe the protestant ethic but i'm not quite sure uh less expenditure on frivolous things on fine foods and so on um more expenditure on on tangibles you know a fox activated dishwasher i always take as a silly example but it, you know hardware uh, cars uh, a house and stuff like that rather than uh, epicurean pleasures let's say so it is quite uh, quite different Harry. Your reflections on what we've just heard so far. Paul, thank you very much for this. The question that jumps out is you describe a ecosystem that has a special sauce. And the sauce seems to be comprised of some combination of the five following things. One is what you just talked about, which is there's something inherent in German culture and history and the way it evolved that led to this. The other is the legal structures that give workers vocational rights and involvement in the business. The third is this by and large sense that these uh, middle stand companies are family owned. They tend to be more privately owned. I don't know if they're publicly listed ones, but they tend to be family controlled. And so they have a certain long-term vision that's multi-generational as opposed to quarterly reports driven. They're very focused. They don't, do a hundred different things they do, as Ben talked about, they're very focused around either sub-segments. Which of these do you think play the biggest role? And I would ask the question in the following context, which is the question that jumps out at me is how come if these companies are so successful, which they are, why isn't why aren't they everywhere? Why isn't the world filled with companies that are comprised. And the question is, there must be something in this mix that makes it unique and only in that only works in the German context. And I'd like you to decipher what that is. What's the ingredient or the combination that really makes it 
Why why aren't there Mittelstand companies in Brazil and in India and you know Korea? Why why here and why now? And maybe there's a missing ingredient that I don't know about that I'd like you to reveal for our listeners. Building on Ben's comment of saying that Mittelstand doesn't mean it's you know a small local company or whatever. Um, coming back to, to to this Wiesmann uh, company that's being acquired by Carrier and it's supposed to compete by the end of this year, they've got 14,500 14, employees, um, spread in lots of countries, admittedly, but the heart of it is in Germany, uh, in a small town of 6,000 inhabitants, and the majority of the families base their work in that company now. Um, you know, it's a 12 billion euro transaction. So you're not buying a small company for 12 billion. Um, and the Wiesmann company uh, family has an estimated fortune of $1.8 billion. Um, so this is, as I say, it's 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 the castle with the Lord in the castle. And everybody else works around the, 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 the Lord um, and has a degree of... Um, um, commitment or loyalty towards those people. So, you know, when companies go through hardship or whatever, they all roll up their sleeves and, and save it because there's real feeling of belonging. Now, I don't know why you can't replicate that everywhere else. I think probably the fact that, you know, big capitals, big business centers and so on uh, drain all the, the, the capability, the know-how, the, you know, the, the skills and the capital. Now, let me jump in and see if I can answer the question. So let's let's deal with one of the elephants in the room, which is that that one point eight billion dollar fortune is is completely minuscule compared with the size of the value of the business and and indeed the length of the profitability of that business. So I would argue that one of the reasons why perhaps is that the gap between those who own it and those who work in it isn't so dramatically different as it is in lots of other countries. It's a little bit like Japan in that context. And so the uh, the sense of purpose and the sense of uh, your analogy around the castle, I, I struggle with a little bit because it doesn't feel to me like the gap between it's more of a sort of, you know, uh, large villa as opposed to uh, and and <laughs> compared with perhaps a set of cottages and uh, and um, you know uh, that sort of council estate as opposed to a massive castle and people living in in tents. You know, it's not quite that scale. It feels to me like it's there is more of a level playing field between those two sets of people. And to some extent, that works council is also reflective of that has a real meaningful role uh, to play in the, in the organization. So I think that's probably an ingredient that would be, that creates the willingness to engage on a long-term basis um, as an employee with this organization, which I think is quite different from perhaps other organizations which are driven more by capital markets and uh, the opportunity of growth at all cost. David? Let me throw something in. So how does it overcome the challenge of third, fourth generation businesses where um, you've got the capability of the founder, clearly, or the capability of the original management, but typically what we've seen in other countries in Europe is as it passes down through generations, the competence levels tend to fall. Um, so somehow they've managed to deal with that. Uh, and that clearly, Paul, you'll come to this, I'm sure, is a is the challenge they faced for quite a long time. I looked, I saw some stats recently where succession planning for about half of them is okay, for about a third is definitely not okay, and for about the other third is they're still in discussion. I don't know whether that's those stats have ever actually changed or not, because people have been predicting the the demise of the middle stunt for about 25 years, but it's still here. Uh, Paul, what's your view? 
there's, there's two possibilities. I mean, depending on on, on these families that run the, the business, um, the business again. I was working in in the nineties. I think it was a bit it became a bit decadent. Um, so there were a bit of you know ending up the last generation were a bit champagne charlies, um, and a private business does not publish its results. Very often they were making profits that was not really commensurate with the size of the business. But once you've got you know five horses, two race boats, and, and so many cars, that's okay for them. And I think that the, it was a consumer good company. And I think that for them, they got as much satisfaction from seeing their brand everywhere in the country, in every supermarket, and every restaurant, and so on, um, rather than earning more money when they had enough. Now comes a point where if people aren't going to be involved in the business, um, they'd rather grab the cash and run. Um, now, in, in, the, in the case of Wiesmann, um, the CEO is 34 years old, uh, but he's uh, you know gone through he's a hair ingenieur, I don't know what, and his brother's a hair doctor or whatever. So they've been to all the right you know uh, technical schools and stuff like that. They believe uh, their excuse for setting the business, which again the people who belong to it feel they've been a bit they're left uh, as orphans at the mercy of the companies going buying them. Um, is that they they will be subscale now? Wiesmann make heat pumps basically they all into renewable energy and and stuff like that, which which you know is a fantastic sector to be in now with all the new rules and regulations in Germany, and that's been recognised by the group that's buying them, these Ameri- this American company. Um, so yes, they they say they, they do not have the means uh, as a family business to finance the exponential growth. Uh, which they should be able to take without ending up with too much debt, so they can't put enough capital themselves in there, which is and where the twelve million. As we know, in. the Germans don't like debt um, as a fundamental factor. Um, let's let's talk. Can we just move the conversation on a little bit and go from that? I think that's been a really interesting expose into what Mittelstand does. Let's talk a bit about the strategy when acquiring or if acquiring a Mittelstand business. What works and what doesn't work. Um, what would you be advising uh, an acquirer to do? I'm going to start with Paul. I think in the planning phase, realism that the the the, the timeline will not be as fast as it might be uh, in other countries. Change takes time and consensus, um, and and sometimes yeah, and it it, it it requires the ability to to listen, good listening skills, uh, because sometimes some of the objections are not that dumb. Um, and there's maybe a good way of doing things. So, so I think companies come in too much and say, "We're going to show you, you know, our way of working and stuff like that," and that um, exacerbates the resistance. I think it makes people; it tends to make people allergic even to things which would be common sense, just because they feel they're being a bit pushed around. So, I think that would be the first one. Obviously, an understanding of the constraints uh, there, and and possibly redefining something which gives. Um, the acquired company, um, a sense of purpose where they are. Uh, and that might be specializing them in one part um, of the activity of the of the acquiring group. Um, again, you know, this Monday got a, a guarantee of not having any redundancies, layoffs for, for until 2026. But 2026 is around the corner, so that you know that's going to create anxiety. They're not going to shut down any factories before five years. Five years is also a short term. Um, and when you've got people in a business that are very that have known each other for 25 years or more, um, they feel almost responsible for their colleagues. 
a common sense of you want to avoid people going into a sort of mourning process uh, because they're losing their colleagues. I think that really understanding what what you can do with the business as it is, and it will evolve over time. But I think having a plan where you say, you know, in two years we do this, in ten years, when Diageo bought Asbach, they committed for ten years in in Wiesbaden to to remain in this little town of of uh, of Rudersheim, uh, where everybody worked in the company. Um, and you know, ten years plus one month, they moved to Hamburg, and people yeah. can see that coming. Interesting. David, what about you? As a someone who does integration for a living, how would you approach it if you were advising a UK or international business buying a, a little middle shunt company or a middle shunt company? Yeah, I, two thoughts for me. One is um, so often I've gone into integrations that are done and found that very little has actually been done. Um, actually, the, 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 the idea of gaining consensus and the idea of taking your time over it doesn't concern me it's much more realistic it's not uh, often realistic to say oh we're six months in we've post acquisition we've completed the integration we're moving on actually you probably haven't dealt with the underlying differences in the organization at some back point you're going to have to come back to them actually this process of gaining consistent getting people it feels like a longer route but actually in reality i think it isn't often the longer route it, it just you've got full visibility of the full runway you need to you need to cover um, to really achieve integration for the organization um, and the other one is um, I suppose my personal view is is organizations work well as inverted pyramids so rather than top-down command and control senior leadership there to support and enable uh, that organization underneath and that fits really well so so I think I'd be looking very much at the culture of the acquirer and seeing are they capable of managing a business in that style thanks David uh, Abe, I was going to ask you first, then go back to Paul. As a as a person who doesn't focus on integration, I'd, one of the questions I would have and comment would be: It seems to me that the fact the thing that would make a either corporate acquirer or a private equity investor successful in terms of transactions involving middle child companies is sort of this cultural sensitivity, which Paul and David you talked about, but actually an anti anti-MBA, to use the shorthand uh, view, that where integration may not be the right thing to do at all, right? These companies sort of operate in a cohesive, independent manner where, and they sort of have this complex web of relationships and cross-commitments that I think trying to integrate it with a global conglomerate could actually damage. And I wonder, and it, it speaks to one thing that, you know, we've talked about before, which is, if you remember back to the podcast we had about Broadcom, and Broadcom's entire philosophy is, we're going to buy a bunch of these companies, but we're not going to integrate them. They sort of run on their own. We're going to let them do the best job they can, and we're going to provide them with capital and whatever they need. But the goal is not to try to integrate everybody and provide one integrated product. And I wonder, and this is a question for Paul, but all of you, whether the right acquires the right partners are the ones that don't damage sort of this unique but hard to sort of capture cultural ethic that exists in these companies and whether by trying to integrate and maybe you can do it slowly but certainly a traditional us come in hire a bunch of guy, uh, you know consultants to go figure out how to integrate all these processes probably damages that fabric 
and probably does harm. And I'd be curious, Paul's view, as to whether you've seen that. And then secondly, does that mean that the types of the best acquirers tend to be of a certain type? And could you describe that type? I fully agree with your statement of, you know, try not to integrate the company, but then that, you know, raises the question of why are you actually acquiring the company? So what is it that the acquirer uh, can help the acquired company to do better? Now, in the case of Wiesmann, um, it's access to capital. I think, we, we, you know, how can exactly. we grow that company much faster? Um, if you're buying a company that doesn't have that sort of, you know, what can it, what could they not do without the acquirer, then um, it, it's a very, it's a very different question. And and uh, you, but you could make a case, Paul, just as you've said, which is sort of what Warren Buffett does at Berkshire is he doesn't integrate C's candy with the railroad, but he provides fast, efficient access to capital, and probably some managerial talent. It's easier to go find top leadership for succession and things if you're part of a big company than if you're part of a small. But I'd be would wonder. Could you, is that, do you see that, do you see just capital-focused acquirers doing better with in acquiring middle stock companies versus people who have strategic integration needs? Access to access to markets, who bought by, you know, because in the in this case, you know, German manufactured um, goods have a good reputation. Maybe they just don't have, they are international, uh, they've got, they've got, you know, businesses all over the world, but maybe not the sort of oomph that will uh, enable them to actually uh, sell their products everywhere. Now, if they're going to sell much more, then they need a bigger factory. Uh, and that comes back to the question of, of resources. Um, in their case, I mean, the whole uh, problem which was raised for, for Wiesmann was uh, because they're being bought by an American company um, and they felt that the um, the uh, restrictions in, uh, you know, the new, um, what is it called, in in um, in the states, the um, um, the, the yeah the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, you know, which oh, yeah. the IRA states, and they're sort of thinking, oh, this will maybe go, uh, you know, contrary to the to the um, to the interests of a of a German company. Um, but I think that the smart way to do, uh, if they want to really get the you know value out of that 12, 12 billion uh, euro investment. Would be to 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 enable this company to grow much faster than they can now, um, to increase its value and its and, and, and the revenue it will it will produce. I think that's true, Paul. I think the only other thing I would say is that demo, demographics are obviously one thing. Leadership is a is a challenge, and you can see it across the piece. But it, it clearly also supply chain was a challenge during COVID. They are quite global and dependent on that from that perspective, and so. To the extent to which any acquirer can solve some of those problems, whether um, then that seems to be a sensible thing. The the, the one thing to recognise is that it's not it's not a sort of it's not a, a process of of deconstruction, if you like, Abby, as, as perhaps sometimes happens in the integration process. Um, it has to be considered as a, as a whole um, in the way it works. Um, okay, I think we should probably wrap it there. Um, Paul, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask everyone else the same question as well. In 10 years' time, where are we at with, with Mittelstand companies? Are we seeing more and more international ownership or are we seeing the same structure still in place? Is this, does, this, does this sort of uh, microculture continue to exist or is, is this something that is going to ultimately change given where we're going? 
it evolves. I don't think it will be dramatically different in 10 years' time. Um, and maybe, I mean, that my wish would be um, that these companies are, are, are left to do their business and helps to do more of it rather than just being absorbed um, because it is, you know, we, we think... We think of each other as, as quite similar because we're all sort of Western Europeans and so on. If you were buying a company in Japan or in you know in Korea or whatever, you'd probably think differently because you realize there's a difference. Yeah, we think we think we're similar. And I think people underestimate the, the difference. And and so the focus should really be on, you know, what can that company do once we own them, as we've been discussing, but that they can't do by themselves. Um, and unless you you have that that the answer to that question, then the company is not worth buying more, uh, you know, the higher value than its uh, than its value to the owners. David, to you, David. The, the, the themes we're talking about are participation of the staff in the management and decision making, and that's a common trend that I think will support it and valuing more than what's on the PL. So for both of those, actually, I think we'll become more like middle stand companies uh, overseas. Um, the, the, and purpose to profit. So the idea that actually we're not just focused on the profit, we start off with the purpose and that will make us profitable. Again, that fits exactly what you were just saying, Ben, that the theme. My concern is access to capital. And so in so many cultures and, and countries at the moment, that decision-making and power is getting consolidated in fewer and fewer people uh, around the capital. Uh, and that could go both ways. So I don't have an answer to that one. All right. I think this business model is pretty durable, right? And notwithstanding the needs for capital, I mean, there are ways to solve the capital problem without being part of a large global conglomerate, right? You can find private equity, you can find private investors. The fact that these businesses seem to be gaining share, continue to be durable in terms of their innovation uh, strikes me as actually a very attractive model. And I think uh, I think you can, I could envision this continuing partly because I think, you know, there is this broader macro trend away from globalization where globalization and having factories in five different countries was considered a virtue 10, 20 years ago. I think that there's a greater, there's a greater emphasis on having people sit, you know, the entire supply chain or whatever, be more close to you and having personal relationships. And I think you know, these Middlesham companies sort of exemplify that uh, that philosophy, if anything, which I think if, you know, when I went to business school, it was probably viewed as quaint and soon to be gone. And I think we're now moving, as you said, David, towards something where the values that underlie it, sort of this relationship between the work, the workers and the owners and stuff is all coming back into vogue uh, and you know the finance. You can't argue with financial success, in my view, right? And if it sort of works, there's a reason it works, and uh, you know because of their success, I, I would expect it to actually probably grow. I mean, one can see a scenario where more and more companies recast themselves in this way rather than being sold to global conglomerators, right? I mean, in a loose analogy, General Electric went from being this aggregator of companies to now basically being disaggregated back into smaller and mid-sized companies, um, probably not mid-sized, but you could sort of see that trend and you, you know, at least I see some merits in it. And so I would, I would predict years from now that you'd probably see more of them. 
in, to use the to use the analogy to death, it's time for those flared jeans to come out again. Um, thanks all. That was a a really good podcast, and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to talk to us or get in touch, uh, we're available on LinkedIn and Twitter. And please listen into future podcasts. Thanks.